1: I am so excited about today's episode, everyone. Today I have Jane Green, who is the author of twenty-one novels, including eighteen New York Times bestsellers, one cookbook, and various short stories. She's incredible. I own so many of her books, and it's such an honor to have her here today. She has been published in over twenty-five languages and has over ten million books in print worldwide. Jane, thank you so much for being here today.
0: Oh, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
1: Oh, absolutely. So like I said, I've been a fan of your writing and your novels for, for many years. You've written 21 novels, like I said. You're a New York Times bestselling author of 18 of those books. You have another one coming out this spring. What inspires you to come up with so many different characters and storylines and plots for your books?
0: Well, when I started, um, which was about 25 years ago, um, I I actually just, at the time I'd read Nick Hornby's book, High Fidelity, and it was, it seemed to speak to so many sort of single men in their, in their late twenties, early thirties. And I remember thinking, well, Hang on! No one's doing this for women, of course. Little did I know that um, he- that uh, Helen Fielding was was sitting in her flat about a mile down the road from me, uh, writing *Bridget Jones's Diary*. But at that time, I thought, well, no one's actually writing an accurate portrayal of what life is like for a single woman in her in her 30s. Um, and I was in my late 20s at the time, but all my friends were sort of my age and up. And I thought, I'm going to write a book that that is about us and about my girlfriends and about our lives. And my first book was called Straight Talking, And it was um, enormously autobiographical with a healthy dose of imagination thrown in. And I sort of stuck to that formula for a bit. My early books all... Drew. F- they were all inspired by someone or something that was going on in my life, and then, and then, you know, what happens is, even if you think you're basing a character on someone that you know, you know, I wrote a book called Jemima J, um, and that was based on my roommate um, at the time. Except within three pages, she was so clearly not my roommate; she was her own person. Um, but for years and years, I, I drew from my life, and then. Then most recently, I actually dived into into biographical historical fiction, which we'll talk about later. Um, but I think I, I realized my life is just not that interesting anymore. <laughs> you know, I've, I've lived a lot, I've packed an awful lot in, um, and the problem is that now I'm happy, and and happiness doesn't doesn't make for great novels um, when you draw from your own life. And so actually I, I have cast my net wider and now I'm, now I'm doing historical fiction. I love that. I'm not, but I, and I just need to specify not historical fiction like World War II or Victorian times. I'm actually, my passion is the sixties and the seventies. And there are so many amazing stories from that time that haven't been told. Um, and thankfully, you know, people like, um, Taylor Jenkins Reid with, uh, Daisy Jones and the Six have sort of opened that up for us. So, um, so I'm, I'm really enjoying that now.
1: Yeah, I love that, and I think that's what connected me to your work, um, in, in your early novels, is because I was um just out of a, a really long term relationship, and I was single, and I was in my late twenties, early thirties, um, and I didn't even you know meet my husband until I think I was thirty four. Thir- uh, we got married at th- I was thirty five when we got married. So, you know, there was that time span in my own personal life you know, where I was kind of going through what your characters were going through. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. I could relate to it so much. And it was inspiring to to feel like even though I was single, I had this, you know, this this great network of friends. And I had this power of, you know, being a, a single woman in, in the workforce and
0: in the world, you know. Um, and I, I think as well that, you know, when we're out there navigating the world, particularly when we're younger, it. It makes us feel so much less alone when we can read something that's authentic, and I think that's that's really that's what Bridget Jones's diary did first of all, and then I came along and many others since me um but it our books were not only real they were they had an authenticity because we were drawing from our lives and so so people who read them related because you know our lives are not that different, right.
1: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about, you know, our, <laughs> our lives now and how, you know, we're both moms, um, you know, kind of fast forwarding all these years later. And if I'm correct, you're a mom of six.
0: Is that right? Well, I'm, I have birthed four. Okay. Um, and then my husband came with 15 years ago. He came with two children of his own and um, they are, you know, they were raised with, with mine and, and they are ours we're very much the Brady Bunch.
1: I love, I love it. I love it. Well, you know, speaking of motherhood and, and, and then, you know, working motherhood, you know, having, having an outside job, you know, outside the home, you know, how have you found time over the years, you know, to write, possibly go on book tours? I mean, that's a lot to balance motherhood and, and working outside the home. How,
0: how did you do it for all those years? Or and yeah. still do? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think that I, I always felt that I was a much better mother when I was working and when I had something for myself, Mm. I I needed to be defined by something other than somebody's wife and somebody's mother. And, and I also think that, that when you keep working, you know, be it part-time or full-time, it gives you choices and you never know where your life is going to go. So I always encourage women to, to try and keep something for themselves. Um, So, so it was very much a choice. I remember after I had my first child, I was back sitting at my desk writing uh, Babyville two weeks after I gave birth. Um, but I, I think how I've been able to do it is, um, boundaries really and structure. Um, I, I was very disciplined about my work. Um, and, and, in the early days, I would work in the morning. So I was always at my desk by nine and I was always finished by lunchtime. So I could go and meet friends for lunch or do any errands. And then I was always around when the children finished school. So when they were teeny tiny, I had help. When they started school, um, I just was, enormous discipline, which I think is is a huge part of writing, is probably... 80% 80% of writing, actually, because anyone can start a book, but few people can actually finish one. And it really does take just routine and habit and discipline, putting your your bottom in that chair every day. And I, I treat it, it was my job. I was very clear, this wasn't my muse, this wasn't my passion. Of course, it, it was all of those things, but it was also primarily my job. And so I, I had to make sure that I sat down every day. I couldn't just say, oh, you know, if you were, go- if I was going to an office, I wouldn't be able to say, you know what, I, I don't feel like it today. Right. So that's how I treated writing. Writing has always been my job. Yes, I love that. Discipline
1: and boundaries, um, you know, and and like I had said to you earlier, um, you know, I've been sitting on a nonfiction book and even a fiction book um, for about a decade now. And it's just, you know, things, life has come into play and, you know it's been really hard for me to juggle it all and then i kind of shifted my mindset and said no this is a priority for me this is you know a dream that i'd like to have come true of course but like you said it's 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 my passion but it's also a job and so now i've i've literally carved out certain times of the day when my kids are at school now they're both actually in school and actually have some time at home when they're both gone um to be able to do that um but like you said to to be disciplined to actually sit down and do it you know it's um it, it definitely takes some skill and some practice but
0: <laughs> yeah. and i well i think you know i remember somebody saying to me once years ago that as you once you have children you can essentially divide your lives into three parts you have you have family work and friends but you can only ever successfully juggle two Mm-hmm. and I think that 's very true and and uh, you know my my great sadness is probably the thing that has suffered the most has been friendships just because i i haven 't i 'm working so i can 't go for to i couldn 't go to the coffee mornings and and all of those things but i I love what you just said about you know it it 's a job and changing your mindset because it it is all about mindset, and when you decide that this is something you want then You need to take all those action steps that are going to get you closer. And the first one with writing means sitting at your desk in front of your computer. Exactly.
1: Exactly. Well, speaking of mindset, I know um, your husband and I have something in common. We're both marriage and family therapists. <laughs> so that was great to learn. Um, how has that played a role in your marriage and your own mental health um, in the sense of, like you said, the mindset, um, just being just being mentally healthy to be able to balance all of those things? How has that played a role in, in your marriage and into your writing?
0: Well, I I am enormously lucky in that I am married to a man who is possibly one of the kindest men in the world and and entirely selfless to the point where he really needs to learn to set some boundaries. (laughs) He's not very good at boundaries. He's not very good at saying no to people, which is fabulous when you're his wife, but not so fabulous. I mean, it's fabulous when he's doing things for me, but not when he's doing things for everybody else. One of the things that he he did do was he really took on, he was my wife. Um, You know, he took on the kids, um, but he also... I think he has taught me so much about relationships and and parenting and and kindness actually. I think he makes me a far better person than I would have been without him in my life. Um, I'm very aware of my of my flaws, my character defects and and you know I can be self-absorbed and I can be um i can be just difficult at times. And I, I think he has really helped me. He's helped me be much more mindful of everything in my life and just being very aware of, of how I treat him, how I treat people. You know, I didn't, I come from a pretty dysfunctional background in some ways. And so I didn't really have a healthy relationship modeled for me. So I, I just didn't know. Now, of course, uh, I could say the same about him, and yet together we have figured it out and par- part of that is really very being very conscious about the way we treat each other and the way we treat other people in our orbit and actually that filters down to our children you know my most important lessons for my children I I never cared about academics or I mean I cared that they were were fulfilling they were working their hardest but I didn't care whether they went to college or which colleges they went to I cared not just that they were kind but that they they had respect and and manners and they had an awareness of the impact they have on the people around them Mm. Um, and so I think that I probably would not be that person without my husband in my life. Um, I, I really do think he has fundamentally changed me for the better, and I'm a, a far, I am a far—I mean, I think I was always a good person, but I think that I often let emotions and impulsivity get the better of me. Whereas now I—I I know that I don't have to act on my feelings.
1: Mm, I love that. Gosh, I, <laughs> when I was hearing you speak, I, I felt like I was talking to myself for, <laughs> for a moment there, especially, you know, just the similarities that we have, even it sounds like in our personalities, even though we've never actually met, obviously, in real life. But, um, you know, and, and my husband is actually, a, um, a, a he started as a marriage and family therapist, and now he's moved on to be a clinical psychologist. And so, oh, wow. yeah, so I kind of feel the same in the sense where I'm can let my emotions, you know, kind of get the best of me. And, and he can be very impulsive emotionally as well. Well, and then he's always kind of the one that that grounds me, and you know, kind of has me calmer, I guess, (laughs) thinking more of it. Um, But but speaking of grounding, you know, I I don't know, and and maybe you can answer this for me too. But I don't know. Did you know how uh, big your novels would be? I mean, obviously, you have multiple New York Times bestselling novels, but did you know how big they would be? And how have you stayed grounded
0: all of these years? Well. I think I I mean I didn't know you can't possibly know but I I also know that had I not been successful I would have just stopped and done something else I I am so driven which is part of my dysfunctional family background that that I my whole life I think has been about needing to be seen and validated and so I would never have carried on writing if they weren't successful and I I just think that's that's if it's not something that that I that I'm going to be good at I'm just going to to move on and find the thing that I am going to be good at um I don't know whether that's a a blessing or a, a complete disaster I in the early years I mean I had tremendous success very early um I think I probably I I definitely enjoyed the trappings. I spent far too much. If I had any advice for young, successful writers, I would say, put that money in the bank. Um, I was very, very good at making money and I was very, very good at spending it. Mm. Um, But an agent once said to me years ago, in this life, you either are humble or you get humbled. And certainly, if I did have any propensity to think that I was something special, which which I, I... I mean, I don't know that I did because I think I always had imposter syndrome. So I, I definitely had moments when I thought that I was something special, but mostly it was overshadowed by thinking that I really wasn't good enough and I was just enormously lucky. And one day somebody was going to realize that I was just a complete fraud. Um, and and I still sometimes believe that. But I've definitely had my dips in my career. And that, that has been the thing that has... I think really brought me brought me down to earth. Um, I definitely got humbled and, and have had books that didn't perform in the way that that any of us hoped. And, um, and I think that has, that's been great. I mean, f- you know, failure is, is if you're willing to learn the lessons from it, um, I think failure can be a very useful thing to go through. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and Um, I'm sorry, I've got more to say about this. Yes, please. So, so, um, and and I think what failure teaches you actually is how irrelevant it is, you know, the sort of the attention and the, because you get, when you're very successful, you get surrounded by people who tell you that you're wonderful and they're too frightened to tell you when you're making a mistake or when you're doing something that isn't wonderful. And and actually it all becomes a bit meaningless. And I think what happens is once you've had some failures is is you realise that and you also realise that your happiness cannot be based on success, either financial or anything else. You you have to find, you have to choose happiness and and you have to find it irrespective of, of of success or failure.
1: Yes, I. Gosh, uh, that you've said it so beautifully. Um, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, with with everything you said, you know, um, and I can relate to it too. You know, in my own life. Um, and I know you mentioned um a, a tidbit of some advice for some young writers, you know, aspiring writers. Um, you know, and, and I love the advice you gave. I don't know if you have any others. Um, especially when it comes to the actual writing. I know earlier you talked about the discipline of sitting down and writing, but I know for me, sometimes I get distracted, especially if I'm at home, you know, I get distracted by a phone call or, you know, my dog needs to go outside or I, you know, the laundry goes off and I have to, you know, whatever it is, you know, how, how have you stayed disciplined, um, you know, to write and do you need to be inspired or do you have any rituals or how do you avoid distractions? So the young writers out there could, can get some tips from that.
0: Yeah, that, that's a great question. Well, I'm, my first my first piece of advice is, don't write write the story that you need to tell. Don't write the story that you think will sell. That always leads to trouble. When you start to think, oh my god, this this is a great, this is going to be a bestseller, you need to write the story that's authentically true for you. Um, so that that's my first thing. The second thing is with distractions. I actually discovered from, from one of my best friends, who is a, a writer, Danny Shapiro, the writer, Danny Shapiro. She, um, years ago, told me about an app called Freedom, um, which is you put it on your computer and it, you turn it on and it says, how many minutes of freedom do you want? And I usually do two-hour spurts. And what that means is for two hours, I cannot get on the internet for love nor money. Um, And I leave my phone in the car, so I can't sit there scrolling through my phone either. It's really hard, though, because our attention spans are much shorter, you know, now with computers and social media and, and we have no attention span anymore. So I think short bursts of removing your removing the distractions and just making sure that there's nothing that can take take your attention away the other thing, I mean, I always sort of laughingly say people need a, uh, I suggest people have a PhD, but in my world, that stands for persistence, humility, and discipline. So, persistence, because it, there is so much content out there and it is so hard to get noticed. But if you believe in what you're doing, you've got to keep going. You cannot let one person's opinion put you off or rejection put you off. In fact, the first book that I wrote ever was, was this book Straight Talking, which went on to become a huge bestseller. And the first agent I sent it to wrote back and said that they thought it was unpublishable. Um, but I then did a mail shot to 13 more literary agents after I'd clambered out of my depression um, and of the 39 of them came back with a week and said we love this can we can we see more um, so you just never know it is it is so subjective um, so persistence humility um, find someone you trust to read your work and listen to them don't fall into the trap of thinking well i'm the writer and these are my words and you don't know find someone you trust, listen to them. If they tell you that something's not working or it's not resonating, you know, actually look at that. Um, And then the discipline that we, we talked about earlier.
1: Right. Oh gosh, I love that. <laughs> I love that. I feel like I need that. You know, just in not even just you know writing writing my books that I know I've I've had like I said on the back burner, um, coming to with the front burner. You know, for years now. But but in any type of work, you know, whatever that is, whether that's motherhood, whether that's you know working as a, a as a doctor as a um. You know, whatever profession that you have, I think that's great advice for no
0: matter what your profession is yeah. or whatever your passion is. I think that's yeah. that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, By the way, I do. I think humility actually is is something that you know. All of my kids. One of the things that I felt very strongly about my kids was that they all had to work in the service industry. Um, which is not very common in the town in which I live. All of our, all of the young kids go and intern for like hedge funds and things, and, and mm-hmm. really so, mm-hmm. friends of their friends of their parents. But uh, my kids all worked as waiters and baristas, and and I think that's where that you've got to learn humility, and I think the service industry is a great place to start. But humility, generally, I think it's so easy to jump on the defensive. But learning to to have the humility to listen to people and and to empathize, to try and put yourself in somebody else's shoes, is is sort of crucial to to success in life.
1: Yes, and I'm working on that. My husband's been, <laughs> as I said, trying to. Um, you know, just to i almost say instill that, but I've been working on my humility, you know, my whole life. Um, and I think part of that stems from, you know, my, my past and, you know, my family of origin and whatnot, but, um, but it it is. It's such a great quality to have, and it's it's such a great thing as a mother to pass on to your children. So I love that. And I actually worked as a barista and as a server in restaurants for oh, years. So oh, I, oh, I I at least have one step ahead of me at this point. But no, yeah. it is. It's good. It's it's good to have that um, that life experience um, and to and to have real life places where you can practice humility. Because I think like sometimes we don't necessarily have those opportunities. And I think to um, to have those um, will, like I said, give them that step ahead. Um, in learning. That,
0: that's the key. The key to all of this is exactly as you've just said is practice, because it, it's, you know, it doesn't come naturally to me and I can be, I can get on my high horse. I mean, that's my, my natural inclination is to get on my high horse, but actually, you know, the more you practice and the more you act as if, the more natural, the better behaviors become. Right. Yes.
1: Yes. Absolutely. And I think like I said, I can relate to that, you know, just in I always joke. I don't know if it's really a joke or not, but I've, I've joked in the past, you know, when I've gotten my doctorate and I've, you know, done this and done that. And it's like I'm always striving to 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 do better and, you know, do the best at, you know, whatever it is I'm I'm striving towards. And, you know, I, I joke that I'm overcompensating for something, you know, and probably that is just the validation and the tension and things like that that you were talking about. Um, I know I grew up with that too, and that's that's hard. To overcome,
0: but it can, it can be. I, I, yeah, you can. I mean, it's, I I do feel like I really have now, but part of that has also been uh, because I too spent my life striving, and I, I, but whenever I hit the goal, it never felt the way I thought it wouldn't it never it never filled me up so yeah. you know in the beginning it was when I get a publishing deal and then it was when I get a bestseller and I got the bestseller and I was like oh well, when I get a number one you know whatever it is right if you if you're goal-oriented it you're all you're going to do is hit that goal and, and set yourself a new one which is exhausting so so I I think it, it it's re- It really is the journey and it is. it sounds so woo-woo, but it's staying present. It's it's choosing to be happy in your life right now, in your skin, in your body, in your house, in your life. It, it's choosing that right now because whatever the goal is that you think is going to fill you up, it, it's not. You'll just set yourself a new goal.
1: Yes, yes. No, absolutely. I, I, I 100% agree with you. Um, now, speaking, I know we talked a little bit about the service inter- industry and whatnot, and I want to segue a little bit into um, something new that I learned about you recently. Is that you went to culinary school and you wrote a cookbook? <laughs> so, I don't know if you want to share a little bit about that side of your life, and um, you know, maybe possibly what your favorite thing is to cook.
0: Well, I um, I I went to culinary school because I've always cooked, and you know, I come from a family of people who are huge foodies and love food and cooking and so I've always cooked but it was always a bit like playing Russian roulette I never I never quite knew whether my cooking was going to be delicious as it sometimes was or disastrous as it sometimes (laughs) was and so I decided that I'd go and hone my skills and take myself off to culinary school and actually I think what I realized at culinary school is that I'm not a great cook but I love the act of cooking so so I'm not she that interested in food like I, I'm not somebody who can I have friends who can spend hours waxing lyrical over this olive oil versus that one I don't care it's olive oil but what I what does excite me is feeding the people I love and and that's what it is for me cooking for people is an act of love for me so the kinds of food that I cook uh, uh, I love anything one pot and easy. I mean, even though I'm trained in classical French cooking, that, that's not what I choose to do. I love wintry foods. I love casseroles and, and things like ossobucco and cassoulet and soups. Um, and But it's more that I want to create a, a comfort and warmth for anybody who walks into my house. I want them to feel nurtured and loved as soon as they cross the threshold of my home. And that's really what food is for me. It, it, it's just, it's it's loving them through food.
1: Yeah. Yes. That's beautiful. I absolutely love that. I love that. And it was great that I learned that about you. I, I didn't know that. Um, but there is one question I've been wanting to ask you for years. So the very first book I ever read of yours, and I believe I have most of, most of them at this point now, but... Yeah. The very first book that I had or that I read, um, it was published, I believe, in 2002, and it was called Mr. Maybe. <laughs> and still, I think one of my favorite books of all time, because that's really the book that really launched that, you know, inspiration to write. And just like I said, gave me a, some kind of feeling of fulfillment as a single woman, you know, in their late 20s, early 30s. So, but I've been wanting to ask you for years, what is your favorite novel that you've written and why? If you have one.
0: Mm. Mm, that's a hard one, I know I know <laughs> well, I'm not sure that I can pick one i mean i i I am right now completely in love with Sister Stardust, which comes out next April, but it's a very different kind of book um so of of the books that have come out, Jemima. Jemima Jay will always have a special place in my heart because it was my sort of reinvention of the Cinderella story. And Jemima has such a sweetness. And, and that was about a girl who, who just feels that she doesn't fit in. Um, and I think uh, I relate to, you know, I, there was so much of, of my feeling of not fitting in in Jemima Jay. I love The Beach House as well, because The Beach House was written after I had met my husband, um, who is my second and last husband and uh, and I felt like I'd written all these books prior to that about women who appeared to have everything in life and yet they were really unhappy and of course little did I know that it was in fact my marriage that was making you know fueling these stories And then when we broke up and I met my husband, which was three days after my former husband moved out, I answered an ad for a tiny little beach cottage. Um, And I, of course, fell madly in love with living by the beach and then fell madly in love with my landlord, who is now my husband, yes. Um, But The Beach House was written after I'd met him. And I felt for the first time, I knew what a happy ending might look like. And so that has a really special place in my heart. Oh, that's beautiful.
1: Beautiful. Well, speaking of, I know you mentioned uh, very briefly about Sister Stardust, which um, does get released in April. I'm so excited about that. Um, I know you can pre-order it now, but will you tell us um, a little bit more where people can find that book, pre-order it and find more about you, a website and whatnot, so
0: they can learn more about more book releases? Yes, can I, can I tell you a little bit about the story? Oh, yes. The of? So I, I was, when I, was, I grew up in London, and when I was a teenager, I stumbled upon a photograph of this spectacularly beautiful woman on a rooftop in what looked like Morocco with her husband standing behind her, and she was in this fabulous embroidered cape sort of on the floor. And I discovered her name was Talita Getty. She had died very young. She had a home in Marrakesh and she was married to a man who at the time, um, John Paul Getty Jr. was the son of the richest man in the world. And my whole adult life, i have been obsessed with her, with her style and wanting to know more, but I could never really find anything out. And then I decided a couple of years ago that I needed to see if I could find more out and, and tell her story. And she she married the the son of the richest man in the world, and they had this, they bought a palace, they bought a crumbling palace in Marrakesh, and they brought in this American designer who who restored it and renovated it, and. Anyone who was anyone stopped off at this palace because at the time, this was in the late 1960s, everybody was doing the North African hippie trail and they were all stopping off at the Getty's house on the way. So the Rolling Stones, Mick Jagger and Marianne Faithful were there all the time. Keith Richards and Anita Pallenberg, Gore Vidal, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, they all stopped there for these Epic parties and and actually a lot of orgies. I mean, it was the the sexual mores of the time were so very different. But but wild parties and hedonism and drugs and rock and roll. But of course, it all looked impossibly glamorous, and Vogue was writing about her all the time. But behind the scenes, it was all going slightly horribly wrong, and they were they were diving into first of all opium addiction and then heroin addiction and and Talita died tragically very young in 1971 and I wanted to tell her story because it's never been told so I spent almost a year researching it Um, and I it's the story of actually a girl in England who is desperate to leave her sleepy country village and move to London to be part of the swinging 60s in London. And she gets swept up in a crowd of, of musicians who then take her to Marrakesh to stay with Talita and Paul Getty. And so it's a huge mix of fact and fiction. You can't really tell who's real and who's not. But I, you know, there is so much research that went into it. Um, and so that is Sister Stardust, which you can order now, um, on barnesandnoble.com, on, on any, you know, from any independent bookstore. Um, you can go to my website, janegreen.com. And I'm posting um, lots and lots about it, mostly on Instagram, which is Jane Green author, and um, often on Facebook too, which is author Jane Green. Oh, I love that.
1: I am so excited for you and to read the book. Uh, I just like I said, you're my favorite author of all time. And it's just been such a dream to talk to you today. Um, just I, I love your work. And I hope everyone who's out there, if you don't already know who Jane Green is, um please go and look uh research her books. Obviously, you have the new one coming out, but you have so many good ones. Like like you said, it's hard for you, I'm sure, to pick your favorite. I know Mr. Maybe was my first and the first one that inspired me, but you've had so so many good ones over the years. So, um, I would love for everyone to go out and, and, and check it out and see what books might inspire you. You might have a new favorite out there. (laughs) Um, there's so many to choose from. So, um, so thank you so much for being here today. Uh, it's just been such a pleasure and excited for your new book to come out.
0: Oh, Kim, it's been my pleasure and an honor. I truly thank you so much for inviting me.
1: Thank you for joining us today. I can't wait to have you back for more. Make sure to subscribe to the Parentologist Podcast so you don't miss an episode. And make sure to tell your friends. This podcast is not intended to be a replacement for therapy. If you or someone you know is in crisis, please call 911.